Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest growing white collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio and every U.S. military base in the world, on your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. Stephen Smith, he is the progressive candidate for governor of West Virginia. WVCantWait.com is the website. It's also the Twitter handle. And he is taking on billionaire governor Jim Justice, and he's doing it with small donors and evoking the Battle of Blair Mountain. Steve, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. So tell us about what it's like in the state of West Virginia to take on a billionaire. And and a friend of mine, uh, in fact, our old producer, Troy Miller, referred to what you're doing as the new redneck rebellion. I don't know if you use that phrase or not, but what are you doing? What's unique about your campaign here? Yeah, well, to answer your question, it's thrilling that what we are offering is the only campaign in recent West Virginia history that doesn't lie to voters, right? The central lie of politics is, trust me, I'll fix it. But we know from history that never in American history, certainly never in West Virginia history, has one politician brought the kind of change our state desperately needs. Only unions can do that. Only movements can do that. And so that's the kind of campaign we're building. 55 county teams 
volunteer teams in West Virginia built up over the last year. 39 additional constituency teams. Veterans can't wait. Seniors can't wait. Students can't wait. The latest one we launched was an ex-offender organizing team. And all of this political infrastructure, this machine, doesn't have one person's name on it, right? It's not Kanawha County for Smith. It's Kanawha County can't wait so that we build the kind of independent political power that lasts beyond one race and beyond one election. That is great. And I hope more Democrats are learning from what you're doing there in West Virginia. We're talking with Stephen Smith. He's running for governor of West Virginia on the Democratic side. I understand your campaign draws inspiration from the Battle of Blair Mountain. What, what, what was that? So a hundred years ago, the bloodiest labor conflict in American history happened in West Virginia when black, white, and immigrant miners marched south against company rule. And they marched against the local political bosses. They marched against the company bosses. They marched against Baldwin Felt agents. They even marched against the federal government of the United States, which tried to stop them. And it's a reminder to us as West Virginians and, and as Americans that we are at our strongest and our most powerful, and we scare the establishment the most precisely in the moments where we align across race, immigration status, religion, to fight for all of us. And that's what we're trying to do in our campaign. And of course, we saw that history emerge less than two years ago when the West Virginia teachers and school service personnel sparked this nationwide movement. That's right. I had forgotten. And, and we had we saw the same thing happen in Washington State, just north of here, where I live in Portland, Oregon. And we've seen it in state after state. That all started in West Virginia. You're absolutely right. So where do you go from here? Well, the, the election's in November, I guess. So, you know, well, there's a primary. We've got okay. a primary in May. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the things we've tried to do along the way really change what electoral politics looks and feels like. Mm-hmm. So, for example, rather than writing our platform with a couple of advisors in a living room or, heaven forbid, contacting some political consultants and having them write our platform. We took a whole year, 157 town halls across the state, more than 600 visits, literally 11,000 conversations, voter to voter. We took all of that information and built a people's platform from the bottom up so that we have something to run on that was literally written by the people of West Virginia. Our Workers' Bill of Rights language in it was written by nurses. Our education plan language in it was written by teachers and bus drivers. And so what we get to run on is not a handful of slogans, but detailed plans, more than 32 detailed state-level policy plans that do things like fully legalize cannabis, start a public bank so that we have capital owned by the people of the state, a corporate crime and political corruption division in the state police so that our state police force are going after the real criminals in our society, prescription drug caps, a wealth tax, what would be the first state-level wealth tax levied against financial wealth in West Virginia to pay to make our schools the best in the country, and what we call a small business revolution where we take the enormous corporate tax breaks that we've passed over the years in West Virginia, and instead use those to make West Virginia the best place in the country to start a small business or family farm or cooperative or a union shop. And that's how we win the government we want and the economy we want is by stopping the practice of sending our wealth in West Virginia out of state.
Yeah, which has been going on for 100 years. Stephen Smith, progressive candidate for governor of West Virginia. The, West, the website is WV, as in West Virginia, can'twait.com. And that's also the Twitter handle. Stephen, I wish you the very best. Thanks for dropping by the program today. Thank you so much. I'll do a quick shout out. We now have 77 candidates here in West Virginia who have signed on to our pledge running up and down the ballot. So that we appreciate all the support. That is great. Well, keep it up. Keep it up. I wish you the Thanks very best. So Thank you, Stephen. Stephen Smith, candidate for governor of the great state of West Virginia. So Tom Hartman here with you and Dale in Oswego, Illinois. Hey, Dale, what's on your mind today? Very nice to talk to you today. Hi. What I'm calling about is I'm not hearing much about Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Bloomberg can actually be a candidate for the Democratic Party? Yeah, he spent a quarter of a billion dollars in three weeks and pushed himself up to pop it in the neighborhood of between 5 and 8% in the polls. And that's nothing to sneeze at. Advertising works. I mean, there's a reason why you see ads on TV all the time, because they, they cause people to change their behavior. They cause people to buy brand A instead of brand B. And Bloomberg knows that, and he's doing that, and he's got 50-some-odd billion dollars. So if he takes 2 or $3 billion to buy an election, he could pull it off. So we'll see where it goes. Dale, thanks for the call. Frank in Manhattan. Hey, Frank, what's on your mind? Yeah, I wanted to tell you, it's an honor to speak to you. I wanted to tell you Michael Bloomberg got into that election so he can destroy Bernie Sanders. Okay, Nancy Pelosi doesn't want him. Hillary Clinton doesn't want him. They're all millionaires, and they're millionaires tax. And Bloomberg is there to attack Bernie. Well, I don't think it's just Bernie. I think it's either Bernie or or Warren. I think that the billionaire class is very flipped out about the candidacy of both of them. I agree with you, Frank, and I think it's very, very unfortunate. Thanks for the call. Joy in North Fork Valley, Colorado. Hey, Joy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I wanted to counter the possibility of Pence and Nikki Haley with uh, Bernie and Stacey Abrams. I think it would be a fabulous ticket. Warren will be Treasury Secretary, and we can still (laughs) save our world. And Warren would be way better as uh, Treasury Secretary than, you know, sitting around being the vice president. She's critically needed for her financial wisdom. Yeah. So what do you think? I, you know, I would be fine with that. I would also be fine with Warren as president and Bernie as Treasury Secretary you know, or, or as Secretary of HEW and in charge of creating, you know, free college education and a national health care system. Um, I, you know, I'm fine with any with either one of them. They are both perceived as outsiders. They both terrify the billionaire class right now, or at least the greedy billionaire class. You know, Tom Steyer is out there being a progressive, but there's very few billionaires who are not, you know, hardcore right wingers, tragically. Yeah, I think you make a good point. Thank you very much for the call, Joy. It's good talking with you. James in Chicago. Hey, James, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Good. What's up? Yes, I want to bring up two things. One is uh, for my African-American brothers and sisters who are voting for Biden. My question to you is, are you voting for him because he championed your issues or is it because Barack Obama picked him? Now, I would suggest that it's probably because Barack picked him. And what I want to say to that is this. Our good president, he was okay, but Barack always took the path of least resistance when it came to the Republicans. So he picked Biden because the least bitter taste. That's why he picked him, okay? So you may want to consider that when you're voting. James, now, there's, a, there's a third reason why, in my opinion, and you know, not being African-American, I might be just profoundly uninformed about this, but my guess is that the third reason would be 
Joe Biden for eight years was vice president of the United States. He therefore is a known quantity. He didn't blow anything up. He wasn't an idiot. He held the office and comported himself well. And there's little doubt that he could step into the White House and be president from day one. And I think that that's actually probably one of the, you know, not to mention the fact that he was the vice president to our first black president. But I think that that's probably the main rationale. I don't disagree with you. But I think that by and large, it was because he picked him. And like I said, Barack took the path of least resistance. Yeah. Also, I want to comment on Trump, and I'm surprised you brought this up on Tuesday. And I used to yell and scream at you when you said that Bernie took 23 states. And I should say, well, wait a minute, Tom, why aren't you saying that he probably could have taken more if states like New York had open primaries? Because independents, if you were not Democrats, you couldn't vote. Right. So he might have taken more states. And I know everybody else will say that. But I say, Tom, why aren't you saying he could have taken more? Well, you know, I'm, it's probably true, James, but I have no specific evidence of that. Although in the states that do have open primaries, so, you know, like Michigan, for example, and Wisconsin, I believe Wisconsin has an open primary. There was only one one county that, that Bernie didn't win in Wisconsin, which is pretty mind-boggling. I mean, point that Mark Pocan makes all the time. We'll see how it shakes out. that's why out. I say probably. That's why I say yeah. probably. I didn't yeah. say you say he could. I said probably. Crystal, Crystal Ball okay. did a, a deep dive into this over at Hill TV. They've got this morning show that she and this other guy do. And what she, you know, what they found when they actually dug into the research and the surveys was that if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, and, and I, I'm guessing that if Warren was, you know, if these questions were framed about Warren, the answers would be the same. But they just, they only did it with Bernie. If Bernie was the nominee, what they found was that virtually 100% of all people who identify as Democrats, even the hardcore supporters of Joe Biden and some of the other candidates, all of them said that they would vote for Bernie. And one woman made the comment, I'd vote for my dog over Donald Trump. You know, it's a, so all of them will vote for Bernie. Among the elites, that is the commentators on TV and the multimillionaires, among the elites, there was a lot of hand-wringing, but most of them would vote for Bernie. So, you know, I think that we, we just need to figure out who, you know, who our candidate is going to be. And, and if we can hold, if progressives can hold together, Warren supporters stay strong, Bernie supporters stay strong until the convention so that we can, between the two of them, they can control a 2,000 vote block at the convention because it takes two out of the 4,000 votes to do anything. And then Warren and Sanders can negotiate how they're going to do this. That's how we need to do it, in my opinion. We'll be back. Johan in Los Angeles. Hey, Johan, what's on your mind today? During the this year election. Uh-huh. I don't think just uh, talk about topics will not work because uh, there is a secret weapon for like Republicans to win election almost every election through gerrymandering and voter suppression. You're right. What's going on in Georgia? I just wrote a book about it. You're absolutely right. So basically, you have to win the Electoral College, not the popular vote, because we well, got you, the number. But you know, ideally, you win both. And the bottom line is, you know, they're stealing probably 6, 8, 10% of the vote through gerrymandering and voter suppression, depending on the state. And so we've got to show up 15 or 20 percent extra. And the kind of that's the bad news. The good news is that typically fewer than half of us show up and vote of any political persuasion. And so, you know, getting an extra 10 or 15 percent of the people out there, you know, if the outrages of this administration don't do it, I just don't know what is. He already did because he like energized the hidden people, which is like 
white nationalists. So, but he uh, also energized the other side. Look at you know a million women showed up for the march in Washington D.C. in 2018, a year and a half ago. We saw Democrats take back control of the House of Representatives. I think it's right. possible in this election Democrats will take back control of the Senate. You've got some very, very, very worried Republican senators: Tom Tillis, Cory Gardner, Susan Collins, Joni Ernst. Uh, the list goes on. And actually, I'm not sure if Joni's up for re-election, but. Thank you. Well said on all points. Doug in Chandler, Arizona. Hey, Doug, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey. I'm really concerned about something, even the point of being alarmed. Okay. You know, the Republicans are very good at scheming. And I have a notion that this John Bolton shiny new object is nothing but a scam. Well, I guarantee you that there's going to be a lot of stuff in Bolton's book that attacks Democrats. And so, uh, you know, I think that, you know, part of this strategy that, you know, I see that as part of their strategy. Is that what you're talking about? I'm saying that if I look at the timing of the impeachment and Bolton resigning, Mm -hmm. and I think that the, the whole plan is to get him to say, oh, well, no, I guess Trump's okay. I, I mean, we don't know what's in the book. Well, we're starting to learn what's in the book. Probably out of the White House. On yeah. The, well, we don't know. I mean, you know, the New York Times has obtained a copy of it, and the two little gems that they have dropped so far have both been anti-Trump gems. You know, one that he's sucking up to autocrats like Erdogan and, and Xi, and the other that he, you know, he actually was engaged in a quid pro quo, and he was up front with uh, Bolton about it. But you know, what else is in the book? I don't know, but I'm guessing that he's gonna he's gonna take as many Democratic scalps as Republican. Is that a, a racist metaphor? I guess it probably is. <laughs> My apologies. Anyhow, Doug, I think that's what he's going to do. He's, you know, but we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. So imagine Valentine's Day is upon you. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes. You look in the mirror and, uh-oh, wrinkles and large under-eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, i got to have a secret weapon, and there it is, Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes, and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing right in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and enter Voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hello, Tom. I want to talk about the Iowa caucuses. Uh-huh. Why I think it's so essential, why we need to get Bernie as the nominee. I know you take a position that we shouldn't, that you're not going to endorse until the candidate has basically... Uh, well, I've quasi-endorsed both Bernie and Warren. <laughs> you know, and, and particularly after this breakfast meeting that I had Sunday, uh, with one of the more senior officials in the DNC and, and also in the Bernie campaign. And what I learned was that there's no way that either Bernie or Elizabeth Warren 
can go to that convention with 2,000 delegates. It's just not going to happen. But the two of them, and 2,000 delegates is what it's going to take to prevent a second vote. And the second vote is where 800 and almost 800 superdelegates come in who are virtually all committed to, uh, you know, a Biden-Klobuchar type of ticket. The only way to get to that 2,000 to stop that second vote is for Bernie and Elizabeth Warren to join forces and negotiate who's going to be at the top of the ticket and who's going to do what at the convention. So we have to continue to support both, in my opinion. But to you, Jared. Well, I mean, I, I agree 100% with what you're saying. We, we need to build a coalition and we need, we need to win outright. And yeah. I don't think... You know, I mean, if Warren wants to stay in the race, fine, but we need to be very strategic with our voting and where we're voting in precincts and how we're doing. And um, I think Bernie could win this outright, even with 2,000 delegates. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, if you look at, like, he's doing good in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada. I think he's in second place in South Carolina, and that's going to pick up if he you know, wins more victories. Yep. And, you know, I mean, we really have to have uh, Bernie as the, uh, the nominee. I think he's got I the mean, strongest chance of beating Donald Trump. And I think Elizabeth Warren has a very strong chance of beating Trump as well. But people are more familiar with Bernie. He ran four years ago. He got a lot of publicity. A lot of people came out and voted for him. A surprising number of people that I knew at, you know, back when Louise and I were living on a boat at the Capitol Yacht Club and, and hanging out with all these guys who are, you know, military and ex-military. I recall I made a list once. I think it was seven people that we knew who voted for Bernie in the primary and then voted for Donald Trump in the general election. And it wasn't that they were ideologues, although all of them had always voted Republican. They simply wanted to vote for the outsider who was going to blow up this corrupt system. Well, I mean, I find that really tragic because I just found out recently that my brother, who was deployed to Afghanistan in 2018 under Donald Trump, was just diagnosed with PTSD. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But my point, Jared, is that many of the people who voted for Donald Trump because they thought he was an outsider who would change things in uh, D.C. are now disillusioned because he really hasn't changed anything. People's pay hasn't gone up. The rich, the fat cat's got a big tax cut. They, those Trump voters, I think, are very likely to become Sanders voters because he's viewed as an outsider, just like Trump is. Jared, thanks a lot for the call. Yes, we need to get behind our candidates, particularly our progressive candidates, and help them win. Laura in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Laura, what's up? Yeah, I wanted your opinion on Bloomberg, and I can take your um, answer off the air. You know, Bloomberg is, he has concluded that he's going to be the guy that if Joe Biden goes down in flames, Joe seems to have a, he's seeming to have a real difficult time. MSNBC was reporting how even Buttigieg and Klobuchar were drawing big, enthusiastic crowds, certainly Bernie and, and Elizabeth Warren. And Joe Biden had like 100 people show up and got applause rather than a standing ovation and rants and things. And Joe, the clip that they played to him was like, well, if you like me, vote for me. And if you don't, vote for the other guy. Really? So Bloomberg is looking at this thinking, you know, this guy between this and all the, the bizarre goings on of his son, uh, Hunter, is very, very vulnerable. And the Democrats are eventually, if they decide that they're not going to go with one of the progressive candidates, they're going to need a so-called moderate candidate, what I call corporate Democrat. And Bloomberg is positioning himself as I'm that corporate Democrat. 
in a way, we've reached the point that Ralph Nader wrote about in his book maybe five years ago that was titled, uh, Only the Super Rich Can Save Us Now, that because of Citizens United and the two Supreme Court decisions that really started all this, in 76, Buckley versus Vallejo, and 78, First National Bank versus Bilotti, where the Supreme Court said that if billionaires or corporations want to own politicians, that is protected by the First Amendment as free speech. And then Citizens United tripled down on that, and then, you know, McCutcheon and everything else since then. What we're seeing now is we've got a billionaire in the White House and we've got a billionaire, two billionaires who are financing their own campaigns to, to go up against him. And one of them might end up being the guy. I'm personally not a big fan of Mike Bloomberg and I don't think the billionaire should be able to buy their way into an election. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Brian in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hey, I just want to quickly fanboy on you for just a second. As I mentioned last time I called, being a blueberry and a strawberry patch, I don't get much in the way of progressive media. And just happened to hear on the Stephanie Miller show, them just absolutely breathlessly singing your praises, both John Fugel sang and Stephanie Miller. You genuinely are, in my opinion, the smartest man in the room. So thank you for all you do. Well, thank you, Brian. That's very sweet of them. Although John Fugel saying gives me a run for my money, I'll tell you. So does Stephanie. And they are so talented. And Stephanie's going to be with me in L.A. And when we're doing a fundraiser for KPFK. But anyhow, back to you. You you wanted to make a a point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, and, and yes, they are both brilliant. So my point is this. How, in your humble opinion, regardless who our nominee is, hopefully it is progressive, but even if it's not, how do we get Obama-level participation from the Democratic electric writ large? I mean, honestly, how do we get those folks to get out and vote, get the souls to the polls at all? And I'll shut my mouth and listen. Thank you, sir. Sure. Well, in psychology, and I, I wrote a book about this, The Psychology of Elections, it's called uh, Cracking the Code, and it's, it's about political messaging and communication. And in psychology, what they point out is that there's two ways to motivate people. You can either frighten them, scare them, or you can entice them. It's basically moving away from pain or moving toward pleasure. Those are the two things that are are our principal motivation strategies. Moving toward pleasure is a little more gentle and far more long-lasting. Moving away from pain is very rapid. You you touch a stove, you pull your hand back really fast, but it doesn't sustain over the long term. So I think that, you know, with the Obama presidency, we were all moving toward pleasure. Oh my God, here's a healer, a statesman, a constitutional scholar, a good, decent man, and our first African-American president. We were all just, you know, falling all over that and and in love with that. With Trump now, We've got, we're afraid that this guy is going to be, become a Nazi. You know, he's a fascist. Or he's not going to become. He already is. I mean, you know what he said? He told the people of Iowa that Democrats want to kill them. And so I think that either one of those kinds of motivation strategies will produce Obama-level turnout. I have no doubt, Brian, in this election, there's going to be a massive Democratic turnout. The question is, are those people going to be given provisional ballots that never, never counted? because the Republican secretaries of state are throwing, have literally thrown millions of people off the voting rolls in the last year. We'll see how that shakes out. Brian, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Bob in Santa Rosa. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing today? I'm great, but I'll get better. How are you, Bob? Yeah, yeah. under the circumstances, yes. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I just want to disagree about Joe Biden. I think he's the worst candidate that has ever been put up in my lifetime for the Democrat. Well, I'm not. I don't know if you're disagreeing with me or not. I'm not saying that he's a good candidate or a bad candidate. I'm. Well, I'm, I'm well, in favor. I'm more in favor of either Sanders or Warren. That's my. You know, I'll put my preference right up front. All the rest of them, all the other candidates that are taking corporate money, they kind of fall into one giant lump in my mind. But you know, if Biden yeah, is going to be our nominee then we need to make sure that we've got this behind us because we went through this with John Kerry and it bit him in the butt badly. This isn't why. This isn't why I'll never vote for Joe Biden under any circumstance. Well, then, Bob, you're making a huge mistake. If Joe Biden well, is the hang nominee, on, hang you're on. voting for Let Donald me Trump. Finish. Let me finish my proposition, okay? I live in California, so my vote doesn't count anyway. So I'm going to vote green. I did four years behind bars because of Joe Biden, personally, Whoa. being against legalization of weed. Yeah. I will never forgive him for Anita Hill. I will never forgive him for being the senator from MasterCard. Yeah. He's the biggest pro-capitalist we could put in there. And what we need is to be away from capitalism, which well, means that Bernie is the only choice. Yeah, I, you he's, know, he's the only one. He's the only choice. Yeah, okay. And anybody Bob, else will lose, and it doesn't matter. Bob, I, I, I get it. And your point that you're in California and therefore your vote doesn't count is actually, you know, something that I can't rebut. In 2000, I lived in Vermont, and I voted for Ralph Nader because I lived in Vermont. I knew Vermont was going to go for Al Gore. So, and in fact, Louise and I split our vote. She disagreed with me. She voted for Al Gore. She said, even though we live in a state where your vote doesn't count. But I don't think we can take anything for granted. You could probably take California for granted. But I, I, you know, even that, I'm a little sketchy about. But thank you. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Margie in Wisconsin Rapids. What I'm calling about is a group called QAnon. Are you familiar? I am. These are the conspiracy theorists who think that Donald Trump is saving America from the deep state. Exactly. And they have a Facebook page called Follow the White Rabbit. Okay. Have you checked it out? I have not checked it out. <laughs> no. Oh, please do. Please do, because it's obviously international, because there are different yeah. languages, there are different... The comments are in code, so it's, you have to be very member of their private club right. in order to be able to understand. Yeah, these are the people who brought us the, you know, invading the pizzeria in Washington, D.C., because Hillary Clinton was running a child sex ring from the basement, a pizzeria that doesn't have a basement, exactly. by the way. Exactly. Yeah. That's them. Guy walks in and shoots, started, shoots up the ceiling. <laughs> no, he did. He actually did. He walked into the pizzeria and fired a rifle. I mean, that, you know, that's what happens when people start taking this, this crap seriously. My brother, Sir Richard the Redneck, He's a devout follower of King Donald. He has sent me a link to a, a DVD, a YouTube video called From, I forget what the name of it is, but it starts with From Darkness to Light. And behind light, they have an image of a soldier brandishing an AR-15. That's their version of light. Now, me, I think that was covered in Genesis 1-3, but then that's beside mm -hmm. the point. There are some other quotes, just real brief ones that I want to give you. He talks about the corrupt and failed regime of the Obama administration. Then he says in some, one point, it's my turn to give back. I want to know what exactly has he given back. Everything he says applies better to the Republic, his Republican administration than to Obama's. But it's, the, it's one of the pre-election speeches against Hillary. 
Yeah. You know, it's obvious that somebody else wrote it for him because it sounds so good. You mean this is Trump? And the commentary on it is so good. Yeah. Yeah, I get it, Martina. And and these are the these bizarre conspiracy theories can actually tear societies apart. It was a bizarre conspiracy theory in part that that led the slaughter of the Tutsis or the Hutus in Rwanda. I mean, you know, and it was fed by talk radio, which is why we need to take this stuff seriously rather than just laughing at these people or, you know, thinking of them as rubes. But it is, is being weaponized now by social media, particularly Facebook and the Internet. I mean, QAnon, I believe, started over at 4chan. But I don't know what to do about it other than just point out to people that they're being sucked into a into a scam, basically. Yeah, I'll send you a couple links. We'll talk about it because I got a lot of ideas. Okay, thank yeah. you. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks, Martin. I mean, this just the, the whole idea that there are evil forces that are controlling everything we do and everything that happens is as old as humanity, right? Whether it was the gods, whether it was demons, whether it was individual groups. In Hungary, Viktor Orban uh, yells about Jews and gypsies, you know, repeating basically the, the Hitler rhetoric. You know, create an other. You know, here in the United States, it's Donald Trump yelling about Muslims and, and dark-skinned people coming from south of our border. And, you know, if you can identify, if you can create an other, you can use that as a political weapon. And we really need to be sensitive to that. Hey, my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is arriving in bookstores on February 10th. More information is available at all fine bookstores. I cover how the heartbeat of democracy depends on the vote. This book goes into depth on the racist legacy of our vote and the unique struggles of African-Americans, women, and Native Americans. In part two, there's a deep dive into the economic royalist modern war on voting. And part three is the solution section, how to get out there and get active. I'm also on the road to the book tour for the hidden history of voting. Join me on Monday, February 17th in San Francisco at the, for the Berkeley Arts and Letters series on Wednesday, February 19th at Town Hall, Seattle. Sunday, February 23rd for the Blue State Ball in Minneapolis. Friday, February 28th at Powell's in Portland and Sunday, March 1st in Chicago. More information is available at TomHartman.com. This book is the third in the series after the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment and the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. Carrie in New Windsor, New York. Hey, Carrie, what's on your mind today? I don't know if this will be refreshing or whatever, but when women were demanding rights and that caused, you know, right? Right, that caused the right wing to flip out. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, yeah, I kind of feel like there's been some things in the news regarding stuff, and I don't know if you covered it or not. Did you cover, by any chance, the World Economic Forum's report that came out about closing the gender pay gap? I certainly didn't do a deep dive into it. I'm familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then also the last debate when everybody was asked a question about women's rights. I was wondering mm-hmm. if you covered that. I don't recall. Is this That's a 20 fine. questions, Carrie? I mean, wh- where are you I going with like, this? You, just, you cover a lot of stuff. And so I think that, you know, I definitely uh, hope that, you know, I have information from a couple of articles right here in front of me. And if this is the world that people want at this point with like men in charge of everything, 
then this is the world that everybody's going to get. And so why, unless men are going to step back and give women a turn, like children are taught to do, to be in power and see if we can do a better job, then, you know, what, stop complaining. Yeah, I'm with you. I think although I would take it a step beyond that, I would say it's not just we have to wait for or hope for or whatever men to step back. Women need to step up. And that's happening. Well, that's that's right. the Me Too movement. Yeah. That's I mean, that's happening. Yeah, that's been happening well. since the early 60s when the birth control pill was legalized and and it provoked the first wave of, you know, modern feminism. And I'm all in, in favor of that. I'm fully supportive of it. Carrie, thank you for the call. Gary in Naples, Florida. Hey, Gary, what's up? Tom, thank you. Recently reading a book called You Just Don't Understand, talking about two different forms of communication. Mm -hmm. One is primarily focused on preserving the individual. The other is primarily focused on preserving connectivity. Females generally are more likely to take preserving connectivity, which is why we need more females in leadership. The Republicans screwed up a long time ago with this idea of individualism. A bunch of individuals do not make a society. Women are just better at it. So yeah. I believe that. Team, team I, I, yeah, I believe that uh, Iceland, Denmark, and Norway are all led by women right now. Germany is led by a woman. I'm with you. There, there are exceptions to that rule, of course. Margaret Thatcher comes to mind. But by and large, I think that having women in powers in positions of power leads to a better society than having men in those same positions. Mark in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Mark, what's up? Well, to build on what the previous caller said, I want to talk about what I consider a decency gap between Republicans and Democrats. So, for example, the way that um, Al Franken was summarily dismissed from the Senate for what appears to be nothing compared to what Trump is up to, right. and dozens and dozens of accusers. My question really is, why do Democrats and progressives behave like this when it gets them nothing? I understand that there's a, you know, just a basic moral bar that should be uh, handled that way, but... Because they care about the country. The reason why Democrats and progressives continue to behave respectfully toward women and continue to punish men, you know, Al Franken, who was charged, you know, by these different women. And I, you know, it always seemed to me like it was an overstated case, although Kristen Gillibrand is still defending it and still calling him nasty names and stuff. But I think the Democrats are concerned about civility. They're concerned about the future of the country. And Republicans just don't give a rat's ass. All they care about is power and money, uh, which are pretty much the same thing. And the tide will turn, Mark. And if we have sacrificed our principles before the tide turns, we got nothing. Well, I'm not necessarily talking about just how women are treated, which is, you know, appalling. Well, take it across the entire spectrum. Mitch McConnell refusing to even allow a hearing for Merrick Garland. That's a crime against democracy, in my opinion. The partisan gerrymandering that the Supreme Court just authorized, that's a crime against democracy, in my opinion. Pushing people off the voting rolls in states controlled by Republican governors or secretaries of state. You know, look at what Brian Kemp did down in Florida. Pushed more than a million people off the voting rolls. 50,000 people who had signed up to vote, and he only won by about 50,000 votes. I think it was 54,000 people who had signed up to vote in the six months before the election who all should have been allowed to vote because it was almost exclusively in black neighborhoods. Brian Kemp said, who is secretary of state in Georgia, said, well, we just don't have the time to process these until after the election. I mean, you know, this kind of stuff 
you don't find Democrats doing this. You might have found machine Democrats doing this kind of stuff in Tammany Hall back in the 19-teens and 20s or in Chicago under the first Daley administration in the 1950s and 60s, but you don't see this anymore. This is not how Democrats That's behave, and thank God. Not in power. Well, no, there are states where Democrats have incredible power. Look at California, for example. I believe that things will change, and I'm not going to be quite as, you know, daisies and stars in the field kind of thing as Michelle Obama was with her, when they go low, we go high. But I think that the essence of what she was saying, which I completely agree with, is that when they go low, we're definitely not going to go there because we are not those kinds of people. We are not that disrespectful of, of other Americans. We are not that disrespectful of humanity. We're not that disrespectful of the environment and the ecosystem. We're not that disrespectful of the people who brought us here, the people who fought and died and bled and struggled for this country, or to get to this country for that matter. We are just not that evil. We are not that callous. And, you know, Republicans are going to do this, and they're going to do it to gain power. They did it in the 1920s. It turned out badly for them. They're doing it again right now, and I think it's going to turn out badly for them. So, Mark, you know, great question, but, th you know, that's my answer to it for what it's worth. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind? When I see the presidential debate, I see the democracy recovery team, obviously, with the exception of the one person. Anyways, you talked early about Epstein, and this is a really, really big subject about power and influence in the world and in Washington, D.C. I talked to John Perkins personally, and he shared his story that you know about in Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and that is that a lot of power in the world is controlled by money, drugs, and sex. I am talking directly to, I'm 71, talking to my gray-haired people who listen and watch the show and attend your events like they did in Seattle. Be prepared for an understanding that sex has been peddled and used the way Harvey Weinstein did in Hollywood. It's been used in Washington, D.C. When you oh, do yeah. that, you will be prepared to understand Lindsey Graham. However, yes. the second part of this and why there's a beautiful juxtaposition in your thoughts, which is how to deal with a Trumpster. And I am a person who, in the street, weekly deals not with the left wings that you deal with all the time, but I deal with regular people, including Trumpsters, and there are debates and, and there are discussions. And I have advised, and I'm going to advise continually up until November of 2020, to stop arguing with fools. Once you recognize a hardcore Trumpster, disengage, don't waste your time, and actually do what I think you can speak about, which is, because you have psychological training, which is the power of shunning people. Hmm. I end the conversation, turn my back, walk away, and I just simply have other conversations with other people. Wow. The Trumpsters don't know what to do about That's this an Trump. absolutely they brilliant observation, Robin. That's an absolutely What's brilliant that? observation. I mean, when people go through dog training, one of the things that they point out is if your dog is all hysterical when they see you or whatever, turn your back on them. Shun them. Animals understand shunning. If you look at, if you read Marshall Salen's work or Peter Farb's work about Native American societies pre-European contact, 
the most severe penalty that could be meted out. Most tribes did not have the death penalty or anything even close to it. But what they had was expulsion, expulsion from the community, which very often wasn't in and of itself a death sentence, but not intentionally. Or shunning, you know, people just refusing to talk to you for a day or so. All of these things brought about just a great humiliation. I mean, the, the enormous emotional impact. So Robin, I think you're, you're onto something here. I love the idea of shunning Trumpsters and saying, you know, enough already. We're, we're not going to go there. Chris in Springfield, Oregon, watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, Chris, what's up? Hi. I want to get your perspective on citizens' assemblies because I think they need to be more in the public discourse. There's evidence that they're a more direct form of democracy than electoral politics, which, you know, in our country are polluted by money and how they control the political parties. And so citizens' assemblies go back to ancient Athens. It's an alternative form of representation. And they're starting to happen more in Europe. And there's one going on in Ireland right now on the topic of gender equality. And Ireland also had a citizens' assembly on abortion because their parliament didn't want to touch the topic. Mm -hmm. So they turned it over to a citizens' assembly and the result was well received by the country. Now, these are assemblies that are basically drawn like jury duty, basically, which is how ancient Greece filled their legislature. Your name was called and you served, and you served for a year or something like that. Is that what you're talking about, Chris? Yeah, and it's representative of the a cross-section of the population. So, like, they're having one in England now, or they're preparing for it. So they're getting a cross-section of the whole population by race, sex, occupation, income, so that it's the best possible representation of the people. Mm -hmm. And then they don't serve long-term like elected people, so they don't get corrupted. And they, they listen to experts, and then they come up with a decision, and then they're done. You know, and then you have another one, and you get a new group of people. So you don't get entrenched interests supported by big money. And France is going to have one on climate policy. I don't know if I said the one in England will be on climate policy. Mm -hmm. And it's inspired by the Extinction Rebellion because they have three demands. And their third demand is that we need democracy. We, our governments aren't representing us. We're dying. We've got 10 years. And, you know, governments just aren't doing anything. And so we need to try having citizens assemblies. Right. I don't recall if abortion was legalized in Ireland by referendum, by their Supreme Court, or by the Citizens' Assembly. I, which was it? Well, I don't know. I'm really yeah. not an expert on any I, of this. I, I'm just I don't know learning. of any provision in our law or in our Constitution that would allow a Citizens' Assembly to be anything other than advisory. Well, yeah. Again, I'm just learning about all this, but I'm in the Extinction Mm -hmm. Rebellion because I think we're out of time, and it's a nonviolent movement that spread to over 70 countries based on scholarly research about how to create social change, and the only way is through nonviolent direct action. And so the Extinction Rebellion, they don't claim to have the answer to all our problems, but 
their third demand is a citizens' assembly because we need some form of democracy that will represent the people. And so I think we should try it. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, obviously, I had no problem with that. I mean, it's just, you know, the, most European countries have constitutions that are quite different than ours, you know, starting with things like proportional representation in a parliamentary system. But it's certainly something to talk about. Chris, let me do a, a little more research on that. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. I appreciate the call, and thanks for calling in. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Alan J. Lichtman, and it's titled Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. This is from the introduction, uh, titled The Book That Must Be Written. On April 28, 1996, 28-year-old Martin Bryant stopped at an inn near his home of Newtown in Tasmania, Australia, and shot to death its two owners. He then drove to the former penal colony and tourist attraction of Port Arthur, where he lunched at a cafe. After eating, Brian pulled from his sports bag a semi-automatic rifle with a 30-round magazine that he had legally purchased through a newspaper ad. With no provocation, he began firing at patrons in the cafe and its gift shop. Before the police stopped his shooting spree, Bryant had murdered 35 and wounded 18 others. His motive remains unknown. There were people everywhere, bodies, said witness Lynn Beavis. I thought at the time, being a nurse, I've seen dead people, I've seen blood, I've seen things like this, but what I saw in there, nobody but perhaps a soldier would know what that was like. The leadership of a shocked nation responded to the Port Arthur massacre, not with thoughts and prayers, but with decisive action. The country's conservative-led government rebuffed their gun lobby and its American ally, the NRA, to adopt comprehensive national gun controls. In a 2015 broadside labeled Australia, There Will Be Blood, the NRA charged that those regulations, which Australia significantly tightened as of 2002, have, quote, robbed Australians of their right to self-defense and empowered criminals. If the NRA was right, America, with its lax control over firearms for alleged self-defense, should be one of the world's safest countries, certainly far safer than Australia, where criminals presumably evade gun controls to prey on defenseless, law-abiding citizens. Yet in the latest reporting year, gun homicides claimed 14,542 American lives, compared to 27 in Australia. And all homicides took 19,510 American lives, compared to 222 in Australia. Since the NRA issued its warning, firearm homicides have declined in Australia, while soaring by 3,534 in the U.S. 
An American is now over 30 times more likely per capita than an Australian to be murdered by a gun, and seven times more likely to be murdered by any means. If we had rates comparable today to Australia's, some 14,000 American lives would have, would have been saved from firearm homicides in 2017 alone. By the gun lobby's twisted logic, Japan, which has one of the world's strictest gun control laws, should be drenched in innocent blood. Yet out of a population of 127 million, shooters in Japan murdered only three persons and injured only five in firearm assaults throughout 2017. Australia and Japan are not outliers. As compared to residents of our closest peer democracies in the G7 group of nations plus Australia, an American in 2017 was over 20 times more likely to die from a gun homicide. The gun lobby would have you forget that gun deaths are not limited to murders. In 2017, 23,854 Americans died from gun suicides. 64% more than were killed in ho firearm homicides. As compared to the peer nations, the 2017 per capita rate of firearm suicides in the United States was seven times higher, while the rate of suicides by other means was 40% lower. These other democracies all have strict firearm regulations. None has a constitutional right to keep or bear arms, a distinction the United States shares worldwide only with Guatemala whose gun murder rate is the third highest of some 195 nations worldwide. Repeal of the Second Amendment is not only right, but realistic. It would break open the political logjam and open a path for the comprehensive national gun control and safety measures that have eluded the American people for so long. None of these measures would confiscate firearms or stop Americans from using guns for hunting, sports shooting, antique collecting, or legitimate self-defense. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. These form the Second Amendment. Book Repeal the Second Amendment by Alan J. Lichtman. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Professor Alan Lichtman. He's the Distinguished Professor at the Department of History at American University. He wrote previously the case for impeachment. His new book, Repeal the Second Amendment. His Twitter handle, by the way, is Alan Lichtman, L-I-C-H-T-M-A-N. Professor Lichtman, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Good to talk to you again. So give me your argument for repealing the Second Amendment in a nutshell. Yeah. For over 200 years, the Second Amendment was essentially a dead letter. It was only interpreted by the courts and policymakers as protecting common defense through a well-regulated militia. This was admitted by the NRA itself in an internal 1955 memo. Then, after the so-called revolt in Cincinnati, when the new militant leadership came up, the NRA hijacked the Second Amendment and distorted it claim an unlimited right to keep and bear private arms. The gun control movement fell right into the trap. Instead of challenging this, they said, we support the Second Amendment, but we also support gun control. It's an uninspiring and failed argument, not for a quarter of a century as the federal government passed a new gun control measure, despite constant mass shootings, despite some 40,000 deaths in recent years from gunfire. And in fact, they let the uh, 
assault weapon ban lapsed in 2004. A new approach is needed to really inspire the gun control movement and get it moving again. We've got to take on the Second Amendment, inspire a grassroots movement for repeal. And repeal has happened before with counterproductive amendments. The uh, Prohibition Amendment was repealed just 14 years later. And even if repeal is not achieved, this movement would reinvigorate the entire gun control effort. I mean, since the ratification of the Constitution in 1789, there have been over, I believe, over 30,000, I'm certain over 29,000 efforts to amend the Constitution that have actually been introduced into Congress. Only 27 amendments have made their way through, or arguably 28, uh, including the one that got repealed. And the first 10 of those, of course, were 1791 kind of pro forma. They were agreed to, you know, at the time of the ratification of the Constitution. So if we've only got 17 amendments or 18, and the only thing that we've repealed was prohibition, which, I mean, America had turned into a war zone in the, in the 13 or 14 years that prohibition was in place. What makes you think that this is even a viable argument? Two points. One, yes, the repeal of prohibition was the only explicit repeal of an amendment, but other amendments have quite significantly repealed elements of the Constitution. We know that we repealed the selection of senators by state legislatures and replaced it with popular vote. We repealed the original way you select vice presidents, which was the second highest vote getter in the Electoral College. We replaced that with the ticket system. We authorized voting for women, for 18-year-olds. So, indeed, the Constitution has been much more mutable than we believe. Plus, as Justice Brandeis says, lots of things happened that we once thought were impossible, and those are the worthwhile things. Who would have thought 30 years ago that it was even remotely conceivable that a conservative United States Supreme Court would establish the legality of gay marriage? We create political reality. We just don't come to it. And as I said, even if we don't succeed, we need a radical new direction for the utterly failed gun control movement of the past 25 years. It's time to stop playing not to lose and start playing to win. Yeah, amen. The book is Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America by Professor Alan J. Lichtman, who is our guest right now. Do you have any advocates for this? Are there any senators who have already explicitly come out for a repeal of the Second Amendment? I don't know of any myself. Yeah, I don't think there have been any senators. I think there have been some House members. But the most distinguished advocacy for repeal of the Second Amendment comes from a a most renowned source, and that is the late Justice John Paul Stevens, who in 2018 wrote the op-ed explicitly advocating for the repeal of the Second Amendment. I remember that. The only way to redeem legacy of those tens of thousands of Americans who were killed by gunfire each year. And I think he wrote it in the the wake of some mass shootings that have marred our nation. You know, The Onion, the satirical magazine said, the gun lobby claims that we can do nothing about these proliferation of mass shootings, even though we're the only nation that suffers from them. Yeah. It's truly remarkable. I thought one of the most compelling parts of your book, or at least early on in your book, I read it on the air today as one of our book reports, was 
your comparison between the United States and Australia after the Tasmanian massacre in 1996, how Australia put into place very strong gun control laws, which still didn't prevent people from having guns for sports shooting, for hunting, or for self-defense, but nonetheless, very, very strict gun control laws, and the per capita rates of homicide and suicide by gun in Australia radically decrease. I mean, people say, well, there's not as many people in Australia as there are in the United States, so of course your raw numbers are going to be different. But the per-person numbers have changed. Exactly. You know, the NRA, as I point out in the repeal of the Second Amendment, the case for a safer America, said, oh my God, Australia's adopting all of these gun control laws, and I quote, there will be blood. But in fact, in the period since the NRA wrote that editorial, homicides in Australia by gunfire have slightly declined while ours have soared by thousands. You know, look at our... If the NRA were right, we should be the safest of our peer nations. We are the least safe. Taking the G7 nations plus Australia per capita, per person, an American is, get this, more than 20 times more likely to be murdered by gunfire than in these other peer democracies. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> professor Alan Lichtman, his, his book, Repeal the Second Amendment. Thank you, Professor. Take care. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Picking up your calls after this. Stick around. Paul in uh, Beatsville, Alabama. Hey, Paul, what's up? I understand gun violence is at an all-time high, but nobody's Just willing in the United to take States. It to take it back to the root cause of the deterioration of the family unit. No leadership in the home. Fatherless children. The proliferation of no value of life whatsoever. I never hear anybody want to talk about that. They want to go and do the treat the symptom and not the problem. Okay, I get it that you think that that's the cause, Paul. I have a question for you, if you don't mind. Go. In most European countries, Western European countries, you know, Germany, France, the UK, Italy, Belgium, Holland, the Netherlands, the divorce rate is actually higher than in the United States. In Canada, it's about the same as the United States. The abortion rate is higher in those European countries than the United States. I don't know about Canada. Nobody said any, I, didn't, um, I didn't say anything about abortion. No, I know, but you said respect for life. So, but in any, in any case, all those social ills, what you're defining as social ills, that you think are leading to mass shootings, are actually present in all these other countries and, in fact, are even more present in those countries than here in the United States. And yet, in the United States, 40,000 people last year died from gun violence. And in the United Kingdom, France, Germany combined, it was probably five or six people. Well, you know, I don't know the numbers for Canada, but I'd be surprised if it was more than a few hundred for the entire country. We had 40,000. How is that? You go back to 1950 across all demographic lines and look at our social ills, they were extremely low because by far most, the family was intact. Yeah, but there I'm, was I'm, moral leadership. Okay, and I think we're talking past each other. Paul, thank you for the call. We'll have to live to battle another day. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. All of us, right? Get out there, get active. Follow, I think it was Cheryl, uh, follow her example. Show up at your local Democratic Party and say, I want to be a precinct committee person. Anyhow, get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.